T-Mobile has invested billions to light up America's largest 5G network from big cities to small towns, including right here in yours. And great coverage is just the beginning. Right now, families and small businesses can save up to 20% versus AT&T and Verizon when they switch. Visit your local T-Mobile store today. Plan savings with three lines of T-Mobile essentials versus comparable available plans. Plan features and taxes and fees may vary. Good morning and welcome to the morning briefing for Thursday, May 17th. 2018. I'm your host, Eric Dame. Jake Hughes is your producer. And coming up on today's show, we are going to speak to the founder of Boulder Crest Retreat and the new best-selling author of Struggle Well, a book that's working to get the Boulder Crest method out to the veteran audience, as well as the general public, because they say their methods, they can work for anyone struggling with mental health issues, PTSD, all sorts of things. We're going to talk to Ken about that. Of course, he's been on the show before uh, to talk about Boulder Crest Retreat, talk about the process of writing a book to get this important info out there. Now the book is out. It's on Amazon. It had, as of uh, yesterday at least, and I told Ken, hey, this is probably not going to last, but it had perfect five-star reviews. There was not a single review below five stars on there, so doing pretty, pretty well. We are also going to be joined by AmVets, and while it's typically Joe Chanelli, the executive director of AmVets, that comes in most Thursdays, today, Chief Strategy Officer, I I think I said Chief, Chief Strategy Officer Sherman Gillums will join us live in studio. He's going to talk about what exactly his job is as a Chief Strategy Officer. We'll also talk about, well, there's some big news taking place on Capitol Hill yesterday and uh, legislatively, so we're going to talk about all of that and more. Sherman will be here live in studio. Before working for AMVETS, he was with Paralyzed Veterans of America. Uh, He is a Marine Corps veteran and he is a disabled veteran. So we're going to talk to him about that entire experience and, and how life changed for him obviously didn't end he's doing important things getting bigger and bigger life certainly changed at one point and uh, we will talk to him about that and so much more coming up on today's show but first as usual we welcome jake the snake hughes super producer of the morning briefing into the studio jake good morning how are you today i'm doing fantastic eric how are you i'm okay it's still raining it's apparently going to rain for like the next uh, three weeks straight from what i was seeing Every time there's a little bit of rain, people just can't drive, man. Oh, yes. I got into the car. I hit the GPS. I use Waze. That's what uh, that's what I use. I'm I'm a, I'm one of the Wazers. That's what they call uh, people like me who use Waze. Really? Yeah. That's what they call them? Yep. Wazers. It is. Trust me. It's a big deal, man. It's a, it's a big company. It's a, They were featured on Conan O'Brien. I guess they're headquartered in Israel, and when he did the show in Israel, he actually visited their headquarters, tried to get them to change something about his commute and how it brought him around. <laughs> But anyway, uh, I'm one of the ones that has like a crown on my little zombie guy that drives around because, well, you know, I drive a lot. I commute down here. Before that, I was commuting into New York City, all sorts of stuff. So um, got in the car and it told me I was going to be here at 558. And I'm like, okay, that's that's fine. I end up getting here at like 625, 27-minute <laughs> difference. And each time it would be like uh, traffic is slowing up ahead and you'd get there and it would just be... I don't know what it was. I don't know. I didn't see any accidents. They would, you would just hit these massive, massive congested areas, not in a place where the the lanes shift from like three to two or anything like that. Just people not being able to drive. 
And then as I got closer to our studios and was driving over one of the bridges, I got cut off by a grandmother. Now, I don't know if she has grandchildren or not. I'm saying she was an elderly person who cut me off and then proceeded to drive about, oh, 10 miles an hour when the speed limit's like 40. Oh, I hate that. Yeah. Cuts over in front of me and then slams on the brakes and then drives slow. It's, you know, I, I, I'm of the opinion that if you're speeding, unless you're going like 100 miles an hour, if you're going 20 minutes over the 20 minutes, 20 miles over the speed limit, like say the speed limit's 55 and you're going 75, you are less of a danger to everyone else than someone who's going 20 minutes, 20 miles under the speed limit at 35 miles. Unless they've been going that long for 20 minutes. What do you mean? You're going that slow for 20 oh, minutes. Oh, yeah, just I keep saying minutes instead of miles. I get it. That's very funny. But <laughs> slow drivers are more of a threat to everybody than the faster drivers. It just, it seems to me because you, you, oh man, when that slow driver, it's coming back at you essentially. If you're keeping up with the speed that traffic is moving at and someone's going slower than what the speed limit is, which is way below what traffic is moving at, it's just a danger. They can come up on you. You cannot expect it because you don't think people will do that. But anytime it rains, I. People know. just lose their ability to yeah. properly drive their vehicle. And it seems like I don't even have the ability to change the time that I leave because it doesn't make a difference. It doesn't make a difference. You just, you're going to sit in traffic for a long period of time. I've, I've found that for me, time does make a difference and it's not a lot of time. If I wake up at 5.30 and I'm out the door when I usually am, I hit not a lot of traffic. But if I hit that alarm again and leave and wake up at 5.35... I end up sitting in traffic for like 15, 20 minutes. You know, I have to sit in traffic no matter what because I have a much farther drive than you do. So getting up at 5 o'clock every day. I mean, if I leave by 5.30, that usually gets me here around 6. Uh, but it, it doesn't always. I mean, sometimes it'll be 6.15, 6.30. You just, you never know. You never know what's going on. But that's just one of those things everybody has to deal with, whether you are a veteran or not. But there are some things that only apply to veterans, one of which is this sweeping veterans policy bill, the VA Mission Act, as it's known. It was passed through the House yesterday. So this is a $52 billion legislative package, Jake, that's going to have an effect on the Choice Program, uh, expand the veteran caregivers. Also, I think... Uh, very important. I'm not going to say as important as the other two. The other two could actually save lives. This, on the other side of saving money, they're going to launch a review of the bureaucracy's national footprint, and that is how many facilities they have, how many facilities they can uh, get rid of and close down. There's adorable babies on the television. Aww. I just grabbed my, uh, grabbed my attention for a moment. Uh, it is, it's going to look at if this can save a substantial amount of money, and I think it can, because the amount of money that they spend for upkeep on buildings, even just what, annual upkeep, once a year type of cleaning up around it and all that stuff, the amount of money that they spend on those facilities, it's large and it's totally extraneous. There are buildings at the, the, the VA facility that I used to go to on Long Island, the Northport VA, there are so many buildings on that base, and I think the majority of them just don't have anything in them. They're just sitting there. They look great. They're well-kept, so that's a lot of money that they're spending on that, but there's nothing going on in them. They're separate from the hospital. You have the hospital. You have the veteran's home. You do have the, uh, the, the hospice care there as well. They used some former housing from when I guess it was a larger – it had a larger um, contingent of people there, including military – they used one of those houses and like transformed it or office space or something into childcare. But there were all these buildings that you wonder, you know, with them struggling for money, 
how much could they save by getting rid of some of this? So this VA Mission Act is going to take a look at that and hopefully you know do some essentially brac style stuff but right. focused on the VA which you know the VA is an employer 300 and something thousand people so it's about the same size as uh, I don't know the Navy as far as the number of people it employs um, but these these extra facilities these extraneous facilities that they have I don't know if that would affect jobs. For example, I don't know if it would if they're talking about shutting down entire VA facilities unless that VA facility has a very small um, workload and there's a cl- uh, larger one nearby that has room for that workload. Then it makes sense. But as far as uh, you know, a Brack style closure of stuff, I, I think it makes sense when you're looking at trying to save money with this organization. Yeah, and it's it's one of those things where you have to look at the bottom line. And if the VA finds they can save money, then that's a great thing. But well, like you said, they got to balance. You know, how many people are you going to lay off? But then again, if they're if they're if they're extempor- extemporaneous too, then get rid of them. Yeah, you know that's uh, it, it, and they have something like forty thousand open job positions at the VA. Um, you start to wonder when you hear about that, and how that's been going on for quite a while. Is that the reason for the issues that we see at the VA? Uh, most of those issues are related again. Most of those issues are related, again, to uh, the administrative side and the bureaucratic side, not the healthcare side. But, uh, you know, are those 40,000 job openings, job vacancies that they have, are they really required? Are they really necessary? If everything we keep hearing how everything is functioning pretty well and it's just we hear the horror stories because that's what's making the news. And that's true. There's some truth to that. You know, when you... uh, when you have a guy, you know, doing something that he's supposed to do, it doesn't make the news. When you have someone, you know, walking down the middle of the street naked and throwing water balloons at people, okay, that's going to pop up on the news. Uh, why that example? I don't know. It's just what popped into my head. I think of strange <laughs> things. Um, you wonder, you know, are those 40,000 people people that we need to spend more money on? Or can we actually downsize the VA a little bit? Then you have the people who worry that downsizing the VA and shutting down anything on the VA is... Um, is essentially privatizing it or moving towards privatizing it. If you take the Department of Veterans Affairs and uh, cut the services, then will that be used as an excuse to send people outside of the VA healthcare system? That's an interesting question, and it's a pretty good question, I think, and it's a valid question. Um, I don't know. Again, there's a lot of discussion on whether uh, more privatization of the VA is a good thing. There's also a big discussion on what exactly privatizing the VA means there are some people who say uh, that the, the the privatization word is more nothing more than just a scare word that's thrown out there and they're talking about not changing much but just basically uh, simplifying the way that the VA does things now well the VA Mission Act is set to change some things in regards to the choice program kind of give it an overhaul and it's going to cost 52 billion dollars now it went through uh, 347 votes to 70 in the House of Representatives, Jake. So that is, I mean, a massive uh, passage, basically. There were 70 people who voted against it. It easily passed. They knew it was going to easily pass. It's also expected to easily pass through the Senate. Um, the Senate was more for this than the House was. And in the House, you had, again, a vote of 347 to 70. We received... Numerous releases from the VSOs, Congress people that we've talked to on the show, uh, you know, Congressman Bacon, Congressman Mass, Congresswoman, uh, Congresswoman Gabbard. A lot of people saying that they're very happy with the VA Mission Act. 
the VSOs all particularly were pushing for this DAV more than anyone. Because as we know, Jake, they've been in studio with us several times. The caregiver mm-hmm. issue is one that has been one of their main points of focus for a couple years now. Yeah, and one of hell, one of the first guests we had on ConnectInvest.com was, I forget her name, but... That Alexis Cornine. Alexis Cornine, yes, was a, uh, a pre-9-11... In, uh, person who, personnel who was injured right. and her husband could not get caregiver benefits because he was pre-9-11. Yeah. But if it had happened, uh, I think it was in her case, if it had happened a couple months later, she would have gotten the full benefits. The exact same thing in the exact same place happened a couple months later. She would have gotten the full caregiver benefits. But because it happened in you know the uh, the the early part of 2001, she gets nothing essentially. Yeah, and going back to what you said, it's historically veterans' issues have gone through Congress relatively easy because you can argue whether it's because people genuinely care for veterans, which I believe a lot do, and whether it could be political expediency. But I figure either way, it doesn't matter because yeah. these things go through and yep. they end up helping veterans. Although everything included in the VA Mission Act should have been in the omnibus spending bill. Uh-huh. And that's where, you know, the VSOs don't often talk about politics, but they all pointed out that the reason that these items were withdrawn from the omnibus spending bill were political in nature. The omnibus was going to get through the House of Representatives. It was going to. Everybody knew that it was going to. Some people symbolically voted against it uh, as kind of a show of taking a stance against the current administration, and they wanted to remove anything that could be held against them voting against. So essentially, hey, why did you vote against the caregiver stuff? I didn't. It wasn't in the omnibus spending bill. They played that game with it. Um, It appears now that it is more than likely to go through again it, it it faced a harder test in the house of representatives than it does in the senate from everything that we're hearing so it should be through the senate in short order according to what everybody's saying that's what the vsos are telling us they expect and then it'll be on the president's desk uh, for signature 52 billion dollars that's the one issue that keeps being brought up with the va mission act is that there is no funding for it yet so passing the legislation through is one thing you don't have the money to do it then that's i mean that's that's a problem and it's something that they will have to work on they'll have to find something uh, find a way to do it interestingly enough part of the va mission act would possibly free up some money to go towards this stuff with looking at the va's footprint the bureaucratic footprint looking at Hey, do we need all these number crunchers? Do we need all of these facilities? Do we need these extra 30 buildings or whatever it is on a campus like the Northport VA? Uh, You know, that, ironically enough, would have to be funded before they could use it to cut back on the money. So (laughs) it's a bit of a catch-22, and that's one of those interesting things when it comes to politics. But again, massive support for this in the military community and the veteran community. And it appears in the political community. So while there were plenty of people that were upset that these things were pulled out of the the, the omnibus, including AMVETS, the VSOs like VFW, American Legion, DAV was particularly not pleased that so many things that they were uh, really interested in got pulled out of there. In the end, they will go through it, it looks like. Again, we can't say for sure that it will go through, but it's certainly getting closer and closer in the Senate you know, should be able to pass this through. Got an interesting story on ConnectingVets.com on disabled veterans digging up history for health. Oh, I've heard about this. This was written by Jonathan Copanger, our reporter, our crack reporter who covers numerous issues. He's a former VA employee. He covers so crack? Knows, 
No, he's a cracked reporter. Jake, oh, come on, man, stop. <laughs> <laughs> he says there's a secret weapon that's slowly gaining popularity to fight post-traumatic stress post-traumatic stress i should say because that's a word <laughs> depression and anxiety relieves allergies is used to treat leprosy helps with lung cancer lowers the risk of dementia and helps build a sense of purpose now if you're suffering from all of those things first my my thoughts yeah my condolences but this is also supposed to make you more attractive, too. So, Jake, I think both of us could use a little bit of whatever it is. Me especially. <laughs> it's something that other countries have been using to help veterans. The British have been doing it since 2011. The Israeli military is about to start the program. And what is it, Jake? Do you know what it is? Have you heard what it is? Or are you going to guess what it is? I've heard what it is, but I want you to say it because you're the host and you get to have all the glory. That's true. That's my job. Uh, you know, you do all the hard work. I get all of the praise. <laughs> it's dirt. Good old American dirt. So American veterans archaeology, archaeological recovery. My goodness, my mouth is not working too well today. Started the program in 2016 and has been working with veterans ever since. So it's not actually the dirt, but a naturally occurring bacteria in it called Mycobacterium vaxae, if I'm using my uh, Latin properly. And if not, it's a dead language, so no one will really know. Scientists discovered that when you take this into your body, it activates serotonin-releasing neurons in the brain. So serotonin, of course, it's the stuff that makes you feel pleasured. It's the stuff that makes you feel good. It's the stuff that antidepressants release inside of your head as well. So... They work specifically with disabled veterans and use the archaeology as a way to help create peer support groups for veterans. So they go out, they dig, everybody has fun hanging out with each other. Archaeology is just a fascinating science in and of itself, finding cool old stuff. Think about, you know, you, you go digging and you find uh, old dog tags on a military installation. You yeah, find arrowheads from a battle or something like that. Yeah, that's a people always think archaeology, they think about finding dinosaur bones, but really it's about finding anything from the past that's covered in dirt. Yeah, and this is uh, something that they also say reminds vets of their time in service. Now, you can make plenty of jokes about that, <laughs> about how your time in service oftentimes seemed like you were just digging a hole for no other reason than you wanted to dig a hole, uh, but you get to do teamwork. You're out there working together to accomplish a goal, accomplish a mission. Um, the good thing about this is, and the way that it's working for veterans through this organization, is that there is a cost when you go on an archaeological dig. Unless you're like a grad student who's getting paid to go out and do this stuff, people who have it as a hobby and just like to go out and do it, you're talking, according to them, $500 and $750 a week, typically. You know, somewhere in that price range. So that's just to take part and dig up dirt and do manual labor, <laughs> essentially. But the veterans are able to go out and do that for free through AVAR and all you have to do is get yourself out there and the team takes care of the rest. And they've got digs coming up. Um, they actually have an excavation that's been fully funded for 20 veterans by National Geographic. And it's going to be in Mount Lebanon, which is up near Albany, New York, from May 22nd to June 3rd. So that's next week. And this is, they're going to an old Shaker settlement. Uh, in fact, it was the largest and most important Shaker settlement in the country. Of course, one of the uh, first settlers from England to come over to the United States. The Shakers were a religious sect and uh, very interested in technology and things like that. It was uh, very interesting. So may find some very interesting stuff. And to find out more about that organization and find out that whole story and see some cool pictures, well, you want to visit ConnectingVets.com and you'll see that story right up there. 
Jonathan Kopanger's story is titled Disabled Veterans Digging Up History for Health. You can check out that and oh so much more, including old and new four video games that you need to be playing right now, written by who else? Jake Hughes. Jake, I think you and I are the only two that play any video games, although... As I've said before, lately, all I get to play is Lego Batman and, yeah. and all that stuff that ap- appeals to a five-year-old. But the four games that you chose, I mean, are these all brand new games or are they a mixture? What's the deal with these four and why'd you choose them? No, they are not. Two of them are brand new games because they're the big AAA releases. You had uh, the new God of War, which is already garnering enough buzz to be considered for Game of the Year, even though it just came out. You got mm. Far Cry 5, which is another entry in a venerable series that goes back years. That's just a lot of fun. It's a sandbox game. You can run around, do everything. You can shoot bad guys or you can fish. And like I said in the article, you can also team up with a drug-fueled, man-eating bear named Cheeseburger. Ah, just like in real life. So exactly. There's a lot of uh, interesting stuff on there. You can see that site. And then another one that's really fascinating, and this is one that uh, applies to the majority of people who are within the DOD system. I'm not talking about the military, though. I'm talking about their families and their spouses specifically. It's a great story on there, again, from Jonathan Kopanger, who's uh, the VA expert, having worked there uh, previous to here. It's his Benefits in My Backyard series that has focused on individual states, individual communities, and different programs that the VA has for different people. This is specifically listing what's available to military spouses. So here's an actual interesting fact that when I saw it, I said, oh, yeah, you know, that actually makes sense. So, Jake, there are actually more family members across the Department of Defense than active duty service members. Well, that makes sense because a family can have, you have a service member with a wife or a husband and then a couple of kids. So that makes sense. It, it does. Now it's actually uh, 57.1 to 42.9%. So 42.9% on active duty. The army has the most with just about three quarters of a million spouses. They are the largest branch of service. So that makes sense. That's 60.6%. So that's three quarters of a million spouses, children, adult dependents, the air force and Navy. Second and third spots, respectively, 57.3 of the Air Force, 54.7 of the Navy uh, are made up by the spouses and dependents. The only branch of service with more active duty than dependents is the Marine Corps with 51% of four <laughs> active to 49% family members. The reason for that, of course, is they marry the Marine Corps when they come in. Yeah, It's actually like one of the first things you do. When you get to Paris Island and stand on those yellow footprints, I've heard that you actually have to uh, take the vows of marriage to the Marine Corps. <laughs> it goes through. Uh, as long as you get that stay supply of crayons and glue, why do you need a life? <laughs> oh, we love you, Marines. Yes. They're the smallest service by far and tend to skew younger because of that. Uh, the, the majority of their members... Uh, are in for you know one to two terms and then get out, uh, as in all of the other services, but they have less people who stay in. That's why you tend to have 51% active to 49% family members. Still, it's pretty close in the Marine Corps to a 50-50 split. So if you go and check this out, we're talking about things like 100% tax exemptions in Texas for families of 100% disabled veterans, the post-9-11 GI Bill, the fact that you can transfer that to your spouse or your children. Like I have some GI Bill benefits left, I'm going to be able to give those to my son one day if I want to. Jake, you haven't used any of yours, I don't think, right? Nope. There you go. Jake will one day be able to pass those on to his spouse, his child, his uh, his next of kin, essentially. Um, So you have that ability. You also have state VA scholarships and grants. It's going to be a lot easier for us as veterans to put our families through college, put our children through college, than it is for the average citizen through benefits like that. And then... 
There's the career field, and the unemployment rate among uh, veteran spouses is actually higher than it is among veterans, significantly higher, as we found out uh, just with uh, over the last couple of weeks. When we were talking to Mick Hurt about uh, Military Spouse Appreciation Day, he said it's somewhere around four times higher for uh, veteran spouses and military spouses. Well, there are actually things like the Military Spouse Employment Partnership, and these things are all listed, all available on that story there. We've also got family support stuff like a low-income home energy assistance program, the Honoring America's Veterans and Caring for Camp Lejeune Family Acts, which uh, can give you housing and government-backed mortgages in some areas, cemetery and burial things, which nobody likes to think about, but hey, you know what? There's only a few things that everybody does, and dying is one of them. What to do when a veteran has passed away. We've got links to all this stuff. We've got the resources there, an explanation of them, and it's available at ConnectingVets.com. To be kept abreast of everything that goes up on Connecting Vets as it goes up, follow us on social media. We are at Connecting Vets on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, and YouTube. You're listening to The Morning Reefing on Entercom's ConnectingVets.com. Connecting Vets every day. Still to come on the show, AMVETS, Chief Strategy Officer Sherman Gillens will be live in studio and... We are also going to speak to Ken Falk in just a couple of minutes. He is the founder of Boulder Crest Retreat, retired Navy EOD Master Chief and Combat Veteran, and now best-selling author. As his book, Struggle Well, is at the top of several charts on Amazon right now as it works to basically explain the Boulder Crest method to the world at large and see if they can't help even more people get over the issues that they are suffering and struggle well. Well, you definitely don't want to miss that, so stick around. We'll be back in just a moment with Ken Falk. Helping military veterans stay connected. We make it easy. We are CBS Radio's ConnectingVets.com. Connecting vets every day. Online and all over social media. Facebook, YouTube, Instagram, and Twitter at Connecting Vets. You're listening to The Morning Briefing here on Entercom Radio's ConnectingVets.com. Connecting Vets every day. It's what we do, and that's why it's right there in the name. It's also right there on the website. If you go and check out our website, you are going to see an amazing array of stories focusing entirely on the veteran and military experience. The things that you need to know. The things you should know. The things that we think are pretty cool and you'd like to know about. It's all on ConnectingVets.com. And the best way to be kept abreast of what's going on there, follow us on social media. We are at Connecting Vets on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, and YouTube. Our next guest is returning to the show, I believe, for the third time, which puts him in very rare company along with people like Washington Post reporter Dan Lamoth and, well, of course, the VSOs who come in here every day. He is retired Navy EOD Master Chief Ken Falk and the founder of Boulder Crest Retreat, Ken, thank you so much for joining us again. Hey, Eric, thanks for having me. It's great to have me. It's my hat trick, I guess. <laughs> yeah, you're back. And you know what? With all the great work that you guys are doing at Bouldercrest and your new book, Struggle Well, which is what we're going to talk about today, I would be very surprised if this was the last time we ever talked to Ken Falk. You know, <laughs> there's a good chance we're going to have more to talk to you about because you are involved in a field of study and a field of assistance for our veterans that is constantly changing, constantly growing, and Boulder Crest Retreat is at the forefront of the movement to find new and different ways to help our wounded warriors. And I want to ask you, of course, you've been on the show before, but some people haven't heard those interviews. Just a very brief synopsis of, you know, your time in the military, what you did while you were in, and how you came to get involved in helping our wounded warriors not just succeed, but thrive after they leave. 
Yeah, well, thanks. I, um, as you know, I, I spent 21 years in the Navy, retired as a Master Chief, and then I started my own company, which I was you know, pretty successful with selling and, and kind of moving on, and that's allowed me and my family to do some uh, philanthropic work. But early in the war, while I was running my company, uh, I got a call from a friend of mine in Iraq whose soldier had lost his legs to an IED, and my wife and I went to visit him at the hospital, and that kind of inspired us to uh, to form initially something called the Wounded EOD Warrior Foundation, uh, which today is known as the EOD Warrior Foundation. We have a, a bigger, broader mission than just severely wounded uh, troops, and uh, and that's kind of how I got into the, the the business. You know, I I was there with this first soldier and thought, you know, kind of as a veteran of the first Gulf War, three or four months this would be over, and I wouldn't see it again. And that year, we we had eleven other amputees that we funded to come, you know, their families to come to the hospital. And uh, one thing led to another, uh, and, and we started this foundation to, to help more. As you know, uh, the war's been tough on the EOD community. We've had about 133 uh, troops killed in action. We've had over 200 severely injured, blind, burned, amputations, paralysis. And then um, uh, and our suicide problem is, is growing. You know, it's nearly the same as our KIA. So it's been a tough war. And, and in 2010 and 11, after I'd sold my company, we started bringing families out to our home out in Bluemont, Virginia, about an hour west of here. And that inspired us to donate 37 acres of our land and build this beautiful retreat, uh, the first of the two retreats we have now. And the second one recently opened out in Arizona. I mean, we're talking in the last six months, I think. Since yeah, well, we officially uh, we purchased it May 1st, so it's a year old that we've owned it. Uh, but we opened it on November um, 30th of last year, 2017. Of course, as you just mentioned, dealing with amputations and the difficult things that EOD sailors, soldiers, Marines, airmen have had to go through, that's one thing, but there are mental struggles that come along with those physical wounds. And I use the example of Ben Kiernan, who is a Marine combat engineer hit by an IED, not uh, facing an amputation at that time. Now here we are, I believe that was 2010 or 11 when that happened to him. Seven or eight years later, the pain in his leg is getting worse each day and is actually considering amputation, he told us, which uh, while we were out on a trip to visit Don Shipley down on the eastern shore of Maryland, that's a kind of uh, a mental stress that I think, I don't think I can even understand how stressful that would be on you to think, you know, seven years after going through a traumatic experience, you might have to make the decision to take off your leg. You have those people who didn't have a decision on their amputations. I mean, what have you seen as far as the level of struggle and the level of difficulty that our wounded warriors have with, with all these things that they have to go through that it's hard for, for you and I to wrap our heads around, really? Yeah, well, it's, it's been it's been an interesting journey, which has kind of led me on, you know, this PTSD journey that I'm on. But, but what you're talking about with your friend is um, is what's known as limb salvage. And that limb salvage, you know, goes on and on and on. And we've seen it even in our EOD community. And the other thing we had um, in the EOD community recently, well, not recently, but a year and a half ago now, is a staff sergeant who lost both legs. And during the blast, the blast had actually damaged his aorta, but they never picked up on it. And a couple of years later, he was in the gym working out and just put too much pressure on his heart, and it, it, his aorta exploded, and he, he died two years later from oh, battlefield man. injuries. So, um, you know, these injuries aren't just what you see, that's for sure. And that's kind of what led me to this work is I was we were hosting a caregiver retreat out at Boulder Crest Retreat, Virginia, and there was a young girl sitting in the corner, which is unusual in these retreats. Normally everybody's together, but it was after lunch, and— she looked like she was just kind of taking a breath and relaxing. And I went over and sat with her, and I said, how's the weekend going? It was on a Saturday morning, uh, just after lunch on Saturday. And she said, well, you know, it's a great weekend. This is a beautiful place, but 
truthfully, I wish my husband would have lost his legs. And it, it like set me back. And I'm like, wow, that's a horrible thing to say. Why would you say that? She said, nobody knows what's wrong with him. And I said, well, what is wrong? And she said, he's been diagnosed with PTSD. And I said, wow, that's, you know, we can, we can do something with that. And, and don't, don't let that get you down. The last thing you want is him to lose his, his legs. But what I have noticed, which is really interesting, is, is a lot of the guys who have these severely physical injuries, severe physical injuries, tend to go on and do some amazing things. And that was starting to inspire me as like, what does that really mean? And that's where we kind of, you know, ended up running into this Dr. Rich Tedeschi down at UNC Charlotte. And Tedeschi, you know, had been doing 30 years worth of research on this subject of post-traumatic growth. And that's what you see with a lot of these amputees. They go on to do like amazing things. Of course, we're speaking with retired Navy EOD Master Chief Ken Falk, founder of Boulder Crest Retreat, two locations, one in Virginia, one out in those southwest desert area in Arizona there where everything is uh, a little bit different than the uh, the Virginia location, correct? That's right. Yeah. yeah. And along with all of that, you're now, I dare say, a best-selling author with Struggle <laughs> Well, your new book, Thriving in the Aftermath of Trauma, you co-authored with Josh Goldberg, who we've spoken to before. Um, this is... Uh, a very important book from everything that I've heard. Uh, I'm in the process of starting to read it, unfortunately. got it a little bit late to read it ahead of time. But this is not the story of what you've seen through Boulder Crest Retreat. This is what you've learned. I mean, this is really uh, an educational book, isn't it? This isn't just telling the story of Boulder Crest Retreat or something like that. This is this is aiming to accomplish some things. Yeah, well, we what we found was in a lot of books on the subject of post-traumatic growth, they tell other people's stories, and and that's important, and I think it's inspiring to a lot of us. But, you know, let's just say, for argument's sake, Susie was injured in a, in a car accident, and she was paralyzed, and she went on to win a gold medal at the Olympics. To the average person, that doesn't relate. Mm-hmm. It's, it's, it's just not the story of, of where they might be in time. And what we said going into this was we felt a couple things. The first was we keep getting asked this question, will what you're doing for veterans work for civilians? We believe absolutely so for a couple of reasons. One is we've put civilians through the program. We've seen it with our own eyes. First responders, military uh, spouses, military family members, and also we had a former NFL football player come through one of the programs. Mm. So we feel very confident that that will work for civilians. And when you start to look at what we can serve as a very small organization and how we can get the message out, that kind of led us to let's write a book. And quite frankly, the, the country seems like it's in a bit of a funk right now. I mean, we've got... 20 veterans a day taking their own lives. We have 123 Americans a day that take their own lives. The suicide rate is the only cause of death in the United States on the rise. And it's just weird. It's just It seemed like the perfect time to write this book. It's also one of those things where when it comes to suicide, when it comes to the issues that veterans have, it doesn't seem that there's any textbook situation where that arises out of, as you guys have seen, where you can have people with an amazing support network still decide to take their lives. You can have people who've you know, gone through all sorts of different treatment programs through the VA or through somebody else still take their lives. I mean, we have wounded warriors who have succeeded at incredible levels in business, in politics. Look at Senator Duckworth, Congressman Mast, people like that. But then we also have those who there's very little difference between them, but end up taking their lives. I mean, it seems that it's, is it individual based, I guess, is the big question. And and how does the struggle well, you know, technique that you guys are working on at Boulder Crest and still continuing to adapt and evolve and share with other people, does it take into account individuals and differences and, and how something can seem good and, and not be good for them? Yeah, I mean, I think so. I think what we're trying to do, Eric, is really 
show people that 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 we're all the same, mm. right? This is a very normalized process, and that when I think when you can when you can start to to show people that that they're not much different than the person next to them, that we're all going through these struggles, that that struggling is is a part of life. And and I mean, I've been, I've, Brian Mast is a great example. I've been with Brian working with him in one way or another since the day he showed up at Walter Reed Hospital with you know with no legs. And now here he is a congressman and you know kicking ass and taking names and I'm like this is this is an amazing story of growth. Now Brian easily could have sat in that bed and felt sorry for himself, you know, but I mean I can remember from day 1 the guy's a fitness fanatic, he's a nutrition fanatic. He was worried about the food that was going in his body. He wasn't didn't want the cupcakes that most of the guys would get, you know, and the deliveries or the chocolate covered strawberries brian was worried about his diet he was worried about gaining too much weight and walking on his prosthetic legs i mean it's it's just an amazing story of of really that you can visualize what post-traumatic growth looks like when you can put your mind to that and that's that's what really what we're trying to do is show people that struggle is normal doesn't matter who you are how much money you have what type of fame you think you might have how big your ego is but struggle is going to occur in our lives and, and there's and there's ways to get through that in, in, a, in, a, in a good way. When you think about the book, when you were writing it, I'm sure you had the idea for the book that you wanted to put in there. You had all the things that you wanted to touch on. Did you write the book more for those who are suffering or more for those who are going to try and help those who are suffering? Or is it really kind of aimed at both audiences? It's, it's interesting you ask that question. I did a podcast uh, last week with a, with a mental health provider, and he said he'd been using the post-traumatic growth work in the book to – and some of his clients, and he was seeing some really different and interesting things. But what we wrote it for, we wrote it for the person, we wrote it for everybody. I mean, the person who's out there struggling that, that thinks that nothing's going to help them, nothing's going to get better. And there's some interesting statistics, right? We know just in the veteran space, we know about 50% of veterans who are eligible for VA care will never even go there. The second statistic we know is in the mental health treatment at the VA, and and by the way, this isn't just the VA. I mean, the mental health system in our country is broken, little let alone what happens in, in, in just the veteran space. We're just kind of a, you know, under this magnifying glass because of all the, all the news that, it, that the VA gets. Mm. But if, you, if, a, if a soldier goes into the VA or into treatment and doesn't complete the treatment, there's no chance of getting better either. And, and that's what ends up happening is we don't, we don't normalize this and it becomes this patient-client relationship where the patient, the veteran, stands up, walks out, and never goes back for his third or fourth or fifth treatment. And, and, and there's no way that the system's going to work for you if you don't complete the treatment. So we think, you know, that this peer-based model that we have at Boulder Crest Retreat and the concepts that we talk about and struggle well um, are, are really the solution. You talk about the VA there, and, you know, there are issues. The VA is doing some incredible things. Some of the treatment at the VA is uh, better than what you could get in the civilian world, and they uh, are certainly experienced in dealing with the veteran community. Of course, we also see our negative stories that come yeah. out of there. Just in the last week, I've had personal friends who I've seen their Facebook posts of issues that they have had at the VA with, whether it was a bad attitude of someone they were in an elevator with, or I just saw a, uh, a story of uh, a Marine's uh, double amputee saying he was turned away from the VA, essentially. Joey, when Joey he went in there. Yeah, Johnny Joey Jones, right? Who's a Marine bomb tech uh, retired who, who said that he was turned away. I mean, there are these stories come out. Some of them, uh, there's a little bit more to it than, than what it seems at face yeah. value. Some of them may be someone taking something the wrong way when it comes to the attitude of someone else or whatever going on there. But we do have those issues, but... It seems important to me, and it seems important to many people that I've talked to, that whenever we uh, go forward with uh, with veteran 
issues and, and new treatments for veteran that the VA is uh, somehow included in it or made aware of it or these things are brought to them. Has the VA been receptive to the ideas that are in uh, Struggle Well, the, the ideas that you've put out through the book? Yeah, I, th- I mean, I think so. We, we, we have a memor- memorandum of agreement with the VA and we, we try to you know, have a two-way street with information sharing. Post-traumatic growth is something new to, to everybody. Um, so we're, 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 working, we're working hard. Uh, but what I'll tell you is that I'm a disabled vet as well. I broke my back back in uh, 1989 in a parachute jump. And, and I've seen healthcare at the, the Department of Defense. I've seen healthcare at the VA. And I've seen a lot of private healthcare. My, my oldest daughter is a mother of four. We've been involved with four childbirths and all the aftermath of all that from the local hospitals and the richest county in the United States, Loudoun County, right here in Virginia where we live. And, uh, and, and at the highest of levels, you know, my wife and I treat ourselves every year to our physicals down at the Mayo Clinic in Jacksonville, Florida. And, and you can't get any health care. I don't think in this country probably better than what places like the Mayo Clinic and Cleveland Clinic do. But when you look at them side by side, and, and I agree with you, that the, me, the medical care at the VA is amazing. Um, I, I will tell you, but when you look at them side by side, the difference is, and, and, it's, and it's only the difference, is the customer service. And that is why, I mean, I, I had conversations with Bob McDonald and, and, and Dave Shulkin, and, and that's what I said is how do you take, how do you increase that customer service care? And then, and then this stuff like that happened with Joey over the weekend, you know, trying to get a prescription filled after he'd called the VA three or four times to, to get this prescription, and they told him what the process was, go to the emergency room, show your prescription to the doctor, we'll give you a prescription. And they got there, and five hours later they told him no. And it's like, and now you've got a guy who's on Fox News and is gonna, who's going to use his voice to, to share it. And I think in certain respects, I feel, I feel bad for the VA, but at the end of the day, if we don't, we have to look at every one of these hospitals as a hospital. And I'm telling you now, if you compare a VA hospital to a civilian hospital, other than maybe a wait time, there is no difference in the care. But that wait time, the way we treat people, uh, they say just, just when you apologize in, in a medical setting, when a doctor apologizes to a patient, the chance of a malpractice lawsuit goes down significantly. They cut the wrong arm off. We don't say anything about it. You know, we're so sorry. You know, you end up getting sued. You find a settlement case. But when you say you're sorry, the chance of that goes way down. And that's really what we've got to work on with the VA is making sure that every, everybody and every veteran understands these hospitals are all run differently. They're all run by individuals and that those individuals have got to increase their customer care level. And when they do that, I think a lot of this stuff will go away. As far as the response to it, it's been very popular. If you go to Amazon and look at it, you'll see it in the top 10 on several bestseller lists there for uh, you know the, the self-help, the mental health issues, the physiological issues uh, included within Struggle Well. How's the response been from those people who, who have been purchasing it and been reading it and been checking it out? What have you been hearing back? Probably the, the, the best email I've had back personally is from, was over this past weekend, and it was a friend of mine who I served in the Navy with, and he said, dude, said, I just finished reading your book, and it almost felt like you were writing it to me. Mm-hmm. And he said, I'm going through a dark place right now, and it couldn't have come at a better time in my life. Thank you. And, and, and that was like, that made my weekend. It was just like, that's, that's really cool. And if you look at the 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 I don't I didn't pay anybody on Amazon <laughs> uh, to put those uh, to put those statements out there. We have asked everybody who reads it to try to leave a leave a review, but um, I, and some of those I don't even know who they are. The the names and or initials simply initials. But I think the feedback's been very very good, and we're hoping uh, we can get the word out and get it out to a lot more people that need it. 
a perfect 5.0 rating on Amazon, which uh, now I'm going to I'm going to prepare you for this, Ken. That probably <laughs> will change because there are people who will give nothing five stars. But so far, everyone who's read it and reviewed it on Amazon has said, you know, five star book um, as far as, you know, who you want to to get this book to. If they were to ask you, like, you know, what am I going to take away from this book or what do you hope that they take away from it? What would you tell that individual? That's a great question, and I think with one that we've put a lot of thought into, but the, the, the short answer of that is, to, is, as I said earlier, is to normalize struggle. Let's understand, first and foremost, that you're not here alone. Whatever's go, whatever you're going through, somebody's been through before, somebody right next to you is going through at the same time, that struggle is, is a normal thing. And then the second thing is if you believe that our lives look like something like a sine wave, ups and downs, is to really to minimize those valleys and those peaks in your sine wave to reduce the time in between them, and and really to figure out how to stay in what we call this livable band or this optimal band of living. And the way you do that, knowing that struggle is going to be normalized, is really with two things. One is to learn how to self-regulate. Because self-regulation, as we say, prevents self-medication. And once you self-medicate yourself, it just go, you go down, down, down the tubes. So self-regulating is very important. And how do you do that? Things like meditation, exercise, not spending more money than you make, uh, f- doing something for others, getting involved with organizations like Team Rubicon, Team Red, White, and Blue, being a big part of, of other organizations and service to others. Service to others is very important. And on the other side of that sine wave is, is your network. And, and what we talk about is, is that human, as humans, we thrive on relationships. We become the average of the three to five people we spend the most time with. And those three to five people have got to be healthy. If you're in a toxic relationships, you've got to get out of them. And it's hard. I understand that. But it's, nothing good comes out of a toxic relationship. And just get them out of that three to five. And I always tell people, say, well, i got this group of buddies I like to drink beer with on Wednesday night. That's fine. But on your average day, you've got to have healthy people in your network. And those buddies that you go out on Wednesday night, just know that drinking beer and having wings with them Wednesday night is a great time. But when you're in trouble, when you need a friend, those might not be the guys you want to call. And you damn sure don't want to go down and, and, and hit, you know, hit the beer real hard when you're feeling sorry for yourself because you know, alcohol is a depressive, depressant, and, and, and the more depressed you get, the, the quicker it leads to, to outcomes like suicide. Let's talk very briefly as we're coming up on the end of our time here about medication in general. I mean, when we talk about medication that's prescribed, there's a lot of controversy over the amount of opiates and opioids that are prescribed by the VA and by doctors in general around this country is not just a military issue. Do you think that medication has a place in the recovery or is it, do you, do you believe that through things like medication or sorry, meditation, not medication, do you believe that through things like meditation and these other avenues that we can either slowly wean people off of those medications or replace it entirely? Well, let me answer the first part of that question uh, uh, first, and that is that, yes, I do believe that medication has a, has a place, right? Mm-hmm. I mean, you, you know, people have blood pressure issues, diabetes. I mean, there's a lot of issues. The second part of the question is I think we, we, we are so quick to, to prescribe, and that's, what, that's one of the things in the, that's a problem in the mental health community. We've pathologized struggle <laughs> and said, okay, let's diagnose, okay, you have PTSD, Here's the DSM that says in, in the DSM you have to go through these two types of treatments, prolonged exposure, cognitive processing therapy, and if you have depression or anxiety, we have to give you these kind of medications. And that's just not the way life works. 
And, and, and what we're doing is we're creating this generation of zombies by filling them with these medications. So, yes, I do believe there is a, is a place. Even in the mental health world, there is a place. The se- severe schizophrenia, by severe bipolarness, there, there are medications that help with that. Severe depression, severe anxiety. There are people that can't live without these medications. Now, one of the reasons they can't live without them is because they've never tried anything different. And that's a big problem. So what I always tell people is at least try something different in the protocol. So when they come to a place like Boulder Crest Retreat, we tell them not to get off of their prescription drugs. Give it a try and then go back to your doctor and say, listen, I'm meditating now. Do you think I can get off of this anxiety medication? And have, a, have an adult conversation with your primary health provider. But, you know, it's, it's bad. And what's bad is that, you know, we, a friend of mine said to me the other day, we were talking about doctors and how many medications a friend of mine's son took his life last year. He was on 30 different medications from the day of discharge to the day of his suicide. Mm. 30 different medications prescribed by seven different doctors. And I was telling this to a medical doctor friend of mine a couple weeks ago, and he said, you know, the issue is if you have more than one doctor, you have no doctors. You know, more than one is none. Right. Uh, you know, whereas in the, in the opposite way, when we talk about equipment, you know, if you have one, it's none. But it's, with doctors, the more you get, the more problems you're going to get. Somebody's got to take control of your health care. And if the, if the medical community is not going to do it, then the most important person is, is yourself. You should take it into to your health care. You should know what's going in your body and how this stuff is counteracting. But even some of our, our antidepressants and anti-anxiety medications, one of the side effects of some of these is suicide. Hmm. So it, it just uh, blows my mind that, that we do this over and over again. And that's, I mean, that's one heck of a, uh, one heck of those uh, side effects, suicide. I mean, it's, it's permanent. It's serious. This is not... You know, someone, it might make you have a runny nose or something. This is something much more serious. There's a lot of serious things taking place within the veteran community. I think none more serious than the mental health issues that we have, and some of which I think are very fixable, but people are not getting the right kind of treatment. They're not getting the right kind of focus, and that's what the book Struggle Well by Ken Falk, retired Navy EOD Master Chief, and Josh Goldberg is about. Now, two questions for you. One, where can people go to find out more about the book and maybe even order one for themselves if they're interested in that? And then secondly, what is the message that Ken Falk, founder of Boulder Crest Retreat, author of Struggle Well, what's the message that you have for those veterans out there who may be having some struggles? Well, the first one, the book's on Amazon. Um, Struggle Well is, is the title, Thriving in the Aftermath of Trauma. And you can see the one with my name and Josh is on it. And also on our website, strugglewell.com, you can reach out to us directly. Um, my personal email is ken at strugglewell.com. I'm open to, to emails all the time. Um, the second message, and I think the biggest thing I'd love to leave all the listeners with, is is, is understand that we're, we're all in this together. We've served together. We can't allow what happens in our transition back to civilian life um, to define us. We, we have got to come home from war and be the productive members of society that we were on the battlefield. And there are so many people out, out here wanting to help you uh, thrive in life, and, and including us, but others and, and all sorts of organizations. So, you know, look in the mirror and don't be afraid to ask for help. I know we're a humble group of people and, uh, and don't be afraid to ask for help when you need it. That's my message. Helping military veterans stay connected. We make it easy. We're CBS Radio's ConnectingVets.com. Connecting vets every day. Online and all over social media. Facebook, YouTube, Instagram, and Twitter. At ConnectingVets. Welcome back to the Morning Briefing on Entercom Radio's ConnectingVets.com. Connecting Vets every day. 
It's in the title because it's what we do. I'm your host, Eric Dame. Jake Hughes is your producer and ConnectingVets.com is your website, focusing entirely on the veteran and military experience and making sure that the information that you should know, the information you need to know, the information we think you'd want to know is right there at your fingertips. And we know because we are veterans ourselves. Each and every member of our team is either actively serving in the reserves or National Guards or served in the military. With one exception, our new executive producer, who is actually a longtime military spouse. So just as connected to the military as any of us are. Of course, one group that's very connected to the military and veteran community is AMVETS. They're working each and every day to make sure that their membership and veterans in general are getting the benefits that they deserve, are getting the information that they need. And while we often talk in to while we often talking, while we often talking to my old Dinfos classmate Joe Chanelli today, we are joined by the Chief Strategy Officer of AMVETS, Marine Corps veteran Sherman Gillum. Sherman, good morning. How are you today? Good morning, Eric. I'm doing well. So you're a first time guest on the show, which means you have to go through the difficult part, which is talking about yourself first. So, Sherman, I know you served in the Marine Corps. Tell us a little bit more about yourself, where you're from, when you joined, and what you did while you served. Well, let's see if you can pick up on a theme here. I'm from Buffalo, New York. Oh, that's basically Canada, right? Right, right. and we know someone else who's from that area. Yeah, that's Joe, uh, too. You, and, you, you, uh, you're both snow people. That's right. That's right. Both <laughs> Bill's fans as well, unapologetic. Wow, that's that's a difficult thing uh, to be. But I joined the Marine Corps at 17. I, I just wanted to get out of the city, go see the world. Uh, so I did that. I went to Paris Island and uh, passed all the requirements, became a Marine, ended up doing 12 years uh, before uh, I unfortunately uh, had an accident that left me unable to continue. But during that time, I was a combat cameraman. Ah. Not public affairs, but I was a comic cameraman, so I'm familiar with Denfos and 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 uh, some of the other uh, PAO related uh, duties. There you go. But uh, but yeah, I, I I loved it. I did a tour as a drill instructor for three years at Paris Island, made chief warrant officer. Uh, so I had a pretty good run. Wow, that does sound like a pretty good run in the Corps. Twelve years is. A long time for anybody to serve. I did 13 in the Navy. You did 12 in the Corps. Jake, our producer, he did 13 in the Army. So we got three of the four branches covered uh, just between the three of us. And I think after you hit a decade in particular, really after eight years, after those first couple of uh, contracts are up, it's become almost a way of life for you. And in the Marine Corps, I think that's doubly so because you guys, uh, you're, you're just a little bit of a different breed in the Marine Corps. So after 12 years, and particularly with your service coming to an end uh, through an accident, an accident that left you uh, differently abled, disabled, mm -hmm. however you want to put it, what was that period of time like for you when you realized that you were no longer going to be an active duty Marine? The accident itself uh, was sudden, as, as most accidents are, but mm. this one was catastrophic enough to uh, leave me unable to continue in the Corps. I was uh, paralyzed from the neck down for a period. I rehabilitated, and I tell you what, that's, there's no lower low than uh, one not being able to control uh, his or her body, particularly when you have to strip off the uniform and, and then undergo that experience. And so I think uh, that's I, I, it's not even a golden hour. It's a golden moment in a veteran's life when uh, peer mentorship is important, uh, having a, a network of support is important. And that's that's the theme of my work with AMVETS right now is to ensure that veterans who find themselves in that position, uh, and I can relate to that, have the, the kind of support that I needed to get through it. We've talked to uh, many of our wounded warriors about uh, the struggles that they've gone through. I mean, Rob Jones, who lost both of his legs, who then went on to bike across the country, run 31 marathons in 31 days. Even the guys who have gone on to do amazing things like that to show that life isn't over, life is just a little bit different when you've been, well, significantly different when you've been disabled uh, by your service. 
every one of them has those uh, those low points, those low moments, and are somehow able to get past them. Of course, some people aren't able to get past those those points. What do you think we can do as someone who's been there, who's been through that, to make sure that those veterans who suffer a catastrophic injury like you did uh, are, are able to to try and get through that and, and able to try and realize that, listen, life is not over? I use an analogy uh, called the hole, and it's it's it, it talks about how when you find yourself in that hole, a lot of people are going to pass by the opening and throw things down and give you advice, and you've got doctors that will throw you pills, uh, but you've got to jump back into the hole with them because that person needs to see how to get out of it. They need to watch somebody else who's uh, similarly situated get out of it. And I think uh, in terms of an injury, it's really easy. I go to those guys at the bedside and drag them along. Let's go. Get yourself out of bed. Uh, but there are different ways you can find yourself in the hole. It could be addiction. Uh, it could be a, just a sense of loss, a sense of uh, uh, loneliness because your comrades died and you made it back, some survivor's guilt, things like that. So you have to uh, keep a system in place where peers can find these guys and these these women as well and, uh, and and jump in that hole with them, show them how to get out. That's the way to do it. We're speaking with Sherman Gillum. Sherman is a Marine Corps veteran and the chief chief strategy officer of AMVETS. And we're about to get the, to all that AMVETS does and some really important things going on and coming up in the AMVETS world. Question for you. Do you think that you would have moved on to get involved in veterans advocacy as you have if you hadn't been injured in the way that you were? I stopped questioning God a long time ago with the ifs <laughs> because you could, we could do a lot of ifs, but um, but I, I I probably and because this is such rewarding work, mm. it it almost feels like this is my destiny. I could say that now. Uh, I don't know at the time. I don't know. I don't. I don't know if I would have valued the experience as much had I been uh, able to walk out of the core after a twenty year career. I know a lot of people who finish that way and aren't the happiest because at some point you got to get out. Mm. And and sometimes that's after you've you, you you've exhausted all the zeal you have in life and you feel lost and you're not even disabled in, in physical form or, or in mental form, but you become uh, disabled by uh, purpose. I guess that's another form of disability when you lack purpose or you question that purpose. And that can be pretty tough. It absolutely can. But you, of course, found your way through and found your way to the world of veterans advocacy. You've worked with several organizations recently coming to the AMVETS team. Tell me about that move. Why did you want to join the AMVETS team? And also, what exactly does a chief strategy officer sure. do? Well, the first question is, uh, why Why did I come to AMVETS? The answer uh, has to do with the fact that I spent most of my years uh, focusing on a, 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 a one type of disability, paralysis. And there are a lot of men and women who undergo that that need somebody who understands. But mental health became a, a bigger imperative for me. My wife is a veteran. Um, she suffered... Uh, after surviving a suicide blast in Afghanistan, she suffers the effects of that. It may be lifelong. So I had a, a, a firsthand perspective of what that's like to go through life after that. And I wanted to tackle that. And, uh, you know, in my previous experience uh, as, a, as an advocate with a focus on healthcare took me down this road where I wanted to explore which organization is ready to do that, make mental health an imperative, a, a, mission, uh, a mission objective. Um, and, and Joe and I had a long talk about it. And once uh, he, he decided that that was going to be a good part of his vision and how he evolved the organization, I wanted to be a part of that. So I came aboard. And of course, you came aboard as the chief strategy officer, which, uh, I, you know, I think when we're as veterans, we hear strategy officer, we're thinking somebody's making a plan to attack somebody else. I'm guessing that's not your main job over there at AMVETS or your job at all. So chief strategy officer, give us a breakdown of what that entails. Well, if you think about the environment we're in right now, we, we watched the House pass the bill on health care, finally, after 
a couple of years of, of uncertainty in that area. We also don't know who the VA secretary is. Um, we also see technology uh, dictating a lot of things. We see uh, social attitude shifting. And the role of VSOs itself is changing. We don't, we don't know. So there's a lot of uncertainty. And the way you navigate that uh, is, is strategically. You have, to, you have to be deliberate in your purpose and your identity as an organization. Um, I, I operate on three principles with the acronym DIE, D-I-E. One, you want to you dictate the change. That means that when you see something happening, you assert an opinion. You assert your voice. Make sure you're heard. Don't wait to respond. You, you set the tone for the conversation as a thought leader. Second one is the I, integrate programs. We look at a veteran as a whole person, and our programs should be set up that way. So if somebody's got financial issues, well, that could be a benefits problem. It could cause health issues. Maybe that person needs a job. And we've got programs that hit all those dimensions, and they have to work together so that we're not one-dimensional in our, in our ability to touch a veteran. And then the E is we have to exploit new opportunities. All this uncertainty is opening doors to, to other ways that VSOs can represent the voice of veterans. Social media, you had better learn how to communicate in that realm. Uh, and, and how do you exploit that? And, and how do you look at all these things that are happening and saying, okay, we can do something differently. And I think that's the real purpose of a, of a chief strategy officer for a uh, VSO. Of course, just yesterday, the VA Mission Act was passed through the House, as you mentioned. Uh, expected to get through Senate, has even more support in the Senate than it does in the House. I'm sure that that's something that you were happy to see. It was a long time coming. Most of the things in uh, the VA Mission Act were originally in the omnibus bill, as we've already talked about this morning on the show, and were removed for well, political reasons, unfortunately. Uh, one of the things in there is, of course, extending caregiver benefits to uh, those who were injured before September 11th, as well as the CHOICE program. This going through, and let's assume that it gets through the Senate, gets signed by the president, which it, it, it's pointing in that direction. How big is that, and how much work is there still left to do, do you think, within the veteran community to make sure that we're all taken care of? Well, first of all, it's just a plan. You know, the, the implementation and execution is really what's most important. But what this what this does, uh, it, it's, it's an imperfect solution, but it's a solution, finally, that allows us to see how the VA health care landscape is going to shape up. Um, there are some pilot program initiatives in there. You know, we're having talks about maybe a way to participate in that. It expands caregiver benefits. We can better uh, take care of our Vietnam veterans and, and their caregivers who are hitting those older ages and need help. Um, it also does something that we do need to watch, though. It expands the authority of the secretary in a way that I hadn't seen before. And hmm. we have to, A, find out who's going to be that secretary, what, <laughs> what, their, what their ideological uh, uh, intent uh, will be, and, uh, and then monitor what happens and, and hold the person accountable. Uh, so the bill just kind of spells out a proposed direction, but it doesn't really matter until we see some implementation and some, hmm. some people behind the effort. So that's kind of what we're waiting on. But it does give finality to a, a long discussion that needed to be had because we were running out of money. You know, when you have to keep, di I mean, it just, it was just a bad way to do business. And so this closes the door on the, this constant need to have to go back and, and beg the Congress for more money. We're coming up on the one year anniversary of this program. And in that time, I believe three times in the past year, we've seen emergency extension of the choice program. Mm -hmm. Seeing it finally be addressed uh, legislatively, at least, is certainly a positive step. Is that the way you look at it, though, is it's just a step and there is still a lot more to be done clearly on these items and on everything else that's not included in the Mission Act? What's well, a necessary step? You have to pass the law first and, and then you have to get a sense of how it's going to be implemented. There have been plenty of laws passed that we're still waiting to see uh, bear fruit, such hmm. as the Appeals Modernization Act. Mm -hmm. uh, you've had other uh, bills that have passed. So it's really in the execution. 
Um, but but I'm happy that we finally had a Congress uh, take a step in a direction that represents progress and not more uh, uh, political maneuvering. That That's the part that sickens me is when I see the uh, health care system being treated like a football or a trophy. We're speaking with Sherman Gillums, Marine Corps veteran and chief strategy officer of American Veterans, a.k.a. AMVETS. Of course, when we talk about legislation, we talk about the Choice Program, we talk about caregiver benefits, uh, those are programs run by the government, run by the VA. AMVETS actually has some programs of its own and want to talk to you about one of those that I believe was just enacted not long after you came over as a chief strategy officer, that being the AMVETS HEAL program. What can you tell us about HEAL and about how well it's been working since it was put into place? Sure. Well, the AMVETS does some things great. They they have the benefits uh, service department, uh, the career centers, but this one piece missing, and that was the health care. If you don't have that, you can't really avail yourself self of any of the other services. Uh, so the, the proposition was to close the loop on the, the range of services we offer veterans by creating this HEAL team, which or it's a HEAL program, and there's a team that executes the, uh, the objectives of the team, which is to reach out and find veterans before they get in crisis, and that's through a helpline that we set up so they could call in and vir- ask virtually any question, any kind of help, if you've got a benefits question, because it all goes back at some point to how are you doing? How's your wellness? Are, are you mentally okay? Are you physically getting the care you need? So the, the team we have, uh, they have experience and expertise in navigating the VA healthcare system, which can be labyrinthine, uh, bureaucratic. You know, you hear all the stories about that, but we want to connect veterans to the, to the right care they need, no matter what the barrier is. And so that's really one of the key uh, features of, of this HEAL, HEAL program is connecting veterans with the care, regardless of what that care is. Let's get it. You know, let's get them the care and, and, and then educate the public. So we're going to have a uh, health symposium where we're going to have veterans, policymakers and providers all sitting and hearing the same thing, hearing the stories, hearing the same proposals and then talk through it and, and come up with some viable solutions to this uh, this uncertain environment we're in right now. Um, but it's really to assert AMVETS's uh, focus on the whole person and, and not piecemealing what we do, but having a a holistic range of services that we offer to veterans as a, as a thank you for what they've done for this country. As a disabled veteran yourself, as someone who I'm sure is uh, you know, intimately familiar with the VA healthcare system, is it upsetting to you that something like this is necessary to be run by a VSO and, and that the VA isn't able to streamline what they're doing and make it readily apparent how it should be used and how people should go about that? You know, I've been living long enough to know that the government, you know, there are things that they just can't do. Uh, they can, they can, uh, you know, they have the money and, and, and the, the scale. Uh, but uh, I don't think you can run a healthcare system without the involvement of those who benefit from it. And so we have to dictate quality in some ways. Uh, there are plenty of hospitals around here, but when you go into one, it's not always the best experience. Uh, they don't listen to the user. Uh, we're the users. We're the ones that have to assert our voice. Uh, this program isn't replacing anything it's helping um that we're filling a void created by the inefficiency of the government and, and maybe that's where i criticize and, and agree with you is that the inefficiency is inexcusable but but then again it's a big operation and uh and how efficient can it be when you don't really have a centralized control over over that many people and, and, and that many functions and we have to remember that the va as an organization is about the same size as the navy as far as the amount mm-hmm. of personnel that work in those two uh, obviously very different organizations, right. but it doesn't have the same structure that the Navy does, which is a little bit 
more efficient and still is inefficient in some ways. So when we look at uh, the VA and we talk about how inefficient it is, you need to take into account how big it is and how there is going to be some level of inefficiency in Mm -hmm. any organization that big. Do you think that programs like the HEAL program and things that may be similar to it but address different issues within the VA, maybe relating to uh, you know non-medical health care things, do you think that those kind of addendums to what the VA offers are something that we'll see more of in the future coming from the VSOs like AMVETS? We're hoping to lead by example. Uh, we're hoping that uh, other organizations will emulate what we're doing. We, we can't hit every veteran. I mean, we, we virtually... Uh, represent the interests of all 20 million veterans given our inclusive charter, but we can't touch all of them. So it'd be great that if we established a model for how you do it and we're able to assist other organizations with setting up a program so they can own their piece of this problem. Uh, because right now, if you don't have a, a program that focuses on uh, veterans health care that actively focuses on it, then you're missing a big part of this problem uh, or being a part of the solution. So we, we hope to encourage uh, our fellow VSOs and even other organizations that have, uh, that are looking for a purpose to take a look at healthcare as a as a key component of their advocacy. When it comes to your fellow disabled veterans, is contacting the HEAL program something that you would recommend to them? And as an add-on to that question, what else do you think it's important for those who have uh, have gone through a traumatic experience like mm-hmm. you did to know about what's coming for them at the VA and, and through their medical care? The first important thing is to know that somebody's been where you are. Somebody has gone through this crucible. Uh, somebody has endured and they've come out on top. And so you've got to uh, ask for help for, for one. Uh, the help is out there and hopefully it's adequate. Uh, there are a lot of 1-800 numbers that claim to offer services, but uh, we, we, we want to be different in that when you have somebody answer the phone on our end, first of all, it's a clinician. It's somebody who knows a little bit about healthcare. They also know VA. We also have relationships with uh, the parts of VA that get things moving, like the VA secretary's office, like the vision directors and and the facility directors. We know a lot of these people, so we can make a phone call and and knock down barriers that way. And that is something that I I think it's oftentimes hard for those of us who are not uh, involved in that world of veteran Mm -hmm. advocacy at the levels that people like you, like Joe mm-hmm. Chanelli, the executive director of AMVETS are. I mean, he's got the secretary, that, well, he had the secretary of the VA's phone number in his phone, mm-hmm. so you could text him and ask him a question like almost immediately, uh, and whoever is the next secretary of the VA, I'm sure that relationship will be there as well. So it's something that uh, people might not expect, because I think we get this idea of people like the secretary of the VA, the secretary of defense, the president, whoever is something on a whole nother level, but we got to remember, they're just people. They're people who are doing important jobs, but it's a job where they have to answer to people. One of the groups they answer to is AMVETS. And we're speaking to the Chief Strategy Officer for AMVETS, Mr. Sherman Gillums, Marine Corps veteran. And we are talking about a number of issues, including there's an upcoming veteran symposium, which I want to make sure we touch on. This mm-hmm. is coming up next week. Tell us a little bit about that symposium and what's going to be addressed and accomplished at it. Yeah, I touched on it earlier. This is going to be held at the George Washington University campus. Uh, we've got three panels. One will be a veteran panel where we have the post-9-11 generation represented, the Vietnam veteran generation uh, represented, and women veterans. And the reason why that's important is because if you think about the three uh, groups that are at highest risk for suicide are Vietnam veterans as the largest group, women veterans as the fastest growing uh, rate of suicide, and the post 9-11 veterans that have served in combat that first year post-service, it's a, it's a, it's a tough year, and, and that's, a, that's a, risk, a risky time for them. So we've got those three groups represented that will speak to those issues. I want to 
I want the, the providers and the policymakers to understand from the voice of veterans, this is why these men and women are killing themselves at this rate, or these are, these are the barriers to access that we're facing. Um, and then we're going to talk to the second panel, which will be the providers, the doctors, both in and out of VA. And then the last one will be the policymakers. And we can challenge them to take what we've learned in this in symposium back to their uh, respective camps and, and help get some policies through that actually make a difference. And there are, just looking at the people who are going to be on these panels, uh, you're on one of them. You're on the veterans I'll be panel. moderating that first one, yep. As well as uh, Melissa Bryant, who we've had on the show before. Mm-hmm. Of course, she's uh, part of IAVA over there, also an Army Iraq War veteran. Mike Lowe, one of my fellow Navy vets. Rick Weidman, Army Vietnam War veteran. And then, I think the panel where... I'd be most interested in what's going to come out of it is the veterans healthcare providers panel, mm-hmm. having the opportunity to, uh, you know, people ask questions and hear responses to important questions from, you know, the uh, senior medical director from Johns Hopkins, the VA national clinic, nursing director, a VA psychologist, AMVET's chief medical executive. How beneficial do you think that can be that just that discussion actually happening between people like that for the veteran community at large and the AMVETS membership? Well, what we hope, first of all, is that they're talking already. Like, it shouldn't take this kind of mm. uh, forum to get them to talk, but uh, but we don't see it, or we don't see the the results of it. So this is this will be right out in front. We're gonna we're gonna show, uh, like I said, we're gonna lead by example by presenting this in a way where we can have a discussion and touch all parts of the problem. Everybody hear the same thing. Providers, you need to listen to veterans. Policymakers, you need to listen to providers. This is what they need outside of VA and in VA. Uh, so when we're talking about choice care and and, and care out, you know, out in the community outside of VA, what, what challenges do those providers face? We're assuming a lot, but this is the way we uh, either we challenge those assumptions and we're either going to adjust and, and or find out we're right. But but we have to have that discussion. We absolutely do. And that discussion is going to take place mm-hmm. next week. It's going to be a week from uh, a week from yesterday. Wednesday, yes. May 23rd is when the symposium is taking place. Is this something that people can show up to and, and take part in if they're interested in finding out more about it? How do they go about uh, that process? You can go on amvets.org to find out about it. We posted the um, the press release about it. Uh, there's also an RSVP link, so it is open. But we want to make sure we have the right people there. If if you're a veteran and you wanna you wanna have a uh, you know give your contribution to the discussion, RSVP. Uh, at some point, we we'll have to cut it off because the room can only hold so many. Right. We're not at that point yet, so, but we're hoping that if there are clinicians who want to hear more about how to take care of veterans, if there are policymakers who are interested in uh, crafting legislation that will be uh, helpful uh, and hear right from the, the voice of the, the providers and veterans, this will be a great opportunity to go hear those things. One last question for you as we finish up here, and that's regarding just the VSOs in general, mm-hmm. including AMVETS. I talked to many veterans who aren't a member of any of the VSOs, and we know that membership is declining in mm-hmm. each of the VSOs. Part of that is because, you know, the generations where so many people served, World War II, Korea, mm-hmm. fewer of them around every day, fewer Vietnam veterans every day as well. If someone comes up to you and says, Sherman, why should I become a member of a VSO like AMVETS? What do you say to that person? Well, the first thing I have to do is make sure I understand what they value. You know, what it is that you value about being a part of something. The second thing is make sure that our programs are effective. And so when I say we can help you do this, that they're actually going to see, you know, uh, have a have a professional intervention in whatever issue it is, whether it's healthcare, whether it's the, uh, on the benefit side, but also uh, what are you doing now to give back? Are, are you are you volunteering at a hospital? Are you are you doing anything to help your fellow veteran? If you won't join AMVETS, join something, be a part of something because that's the only way this thing is going to work is to have veterans helping veterans. I, I really believe that that's the secret to our success. 
is, uh, is, is the fact that we repurpose. I talked about purpose earlier. Well, we give people a purpose who, who don't have that. We've been speaking with Sherman Gillums, Jr. Sherman is a Marine Corps veteran. He is the Chief Strategy Officer of AMVETS. And Sherman, if people do want to find out more about AMVETS and what you guys are doing and what you're doing over there, again, where do they go to find all that information? Well, it's real easy. You can go on amvets.org. Uh, I encourage uh, listeners to go to amvets.org backslash vet dash heal to learn more about the heal team. You can also go on social media. Uh, I believe it's amvets HQ and That's Facebook. Correct, yep. <laughs> and uh, we're also on Twitter. So we're everywhere. You can, you can hashtag heal American veterans. Find us through that hashtag as well. And uh, we've been uh, putting a lot of content out there. So we'll, we should be easy to find it. Well, we want to thank Sherman Gillums and Ken Falk, retired Navy EOD Master Chief. Again, the website for his book, strugglewell.com. This has been the Morning Briefing Thursday edition, and there's still more to come this week. Tomorrow, we're going to talk to the VFW, and we're going to have some other fascinating guests joining us as well. So join us then. And until then, have a great day. Have a safe day. We'll see you tomorrow. T-Mobile has invested billions to light up America's largest 5G network, from big cities to small towns, including right here in yours. And great coverage is just the beginning. Right now, families and small businesses can save up to 20% versus AT&T and Verizon when they switch. Visit your local T-Mobile store today. Plan savings with three lines of T-Mobile essentials versus comparable available plans. Plan features and taxes and fees may vary.